<coughs> being a doctor, I'm sure you're used to it. Um, and uh, after I finish speaking, I'm going down to our other congregation at 502 Ashley Road. So really gutted to be missing Tommy's baptism, but uh, so glad that he's uh, getting baptized this morning. Absolutely brilliant. Right, for those of you who are uh, new here this morning, we at the moment are doing a series from the letter of First Peter. If you want to get a Bible and follow along, you're welcome to grab one off the shelves. Maybe a stewarding team could grab a few and pass me around to those who'd like to have a Bible to follow along. And uh, we're in this book, which the Apostle Peter writes to believers in the region which we currently think of as uh, Turkey. Should be a map coming up, gives you an idea of where this letter was written to. So uh, in uh, the, the world, or the Roman world at the time, these are provinces of Asia and Bithynia and Galatia and Cappadocia and Pamphylia, uh, what we think of as, as Turkey. And uh, these are people who are having a, a tough time. They've come to faith in Jesus, uh, but their faith in Jesus is causing them to experience opposition in different areas of life. And so even though they're living in the towns where they've been born and bred, they're feeling a sense of alienation. They're feeling a sense of exile because their faith in Christ is making them different from the culture in which they live. And so that's why we've called this series about being faithful in exile, because we want to be faithful in exile as well. Uh, we belong here. Uh, we live here. This is our hometown. But for those of us who follow Christ, there can be a sense in our culture that we don't quite fit. We don't quite belong. And actually, that's how it's meant to be, that we're meant to feel a sense of our difference as Christians, that we're called to different values, a different way of life. We have a different Lord that we serve, and uh, we're called to be faithful in that. Now, today's passage is one which is likely to ruffle some feathers when we read it. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, and you're not normally at church, it might be that as I read this passage this morning, you kind of feel that's confirmed all my worst suspicions. Everything I thought about Christians, everything I thought about the Bible, everything about I thought about church, there it is. Um, uh, today's passage and today's theme is about marriage. I'm talking about marriage in exile, and there's some very immediate, very practical application to what Peter writes about marriage in this letter. But whenever the Bible talks about marriage, there's always a bigger story going on. It's always pointed to something more than just one man and one woman in a relationship together. And hopefully we can see both the practical application for us and we can see something of the bigger picture about marriage as well. So let's read it. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives, when they see the beauty, the purity, and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right, and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives, and treat them with respect as the weaker partner, and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. 
need to do some uh, work on context as we come to this passage. As always, context is key. And actually, a large part of how you respond, how you responded emotionally as I read those words, will be to do with the context that you personally are in, whether you are married or whether you are single. If you are married, whether that's happily or regretfully, whether you're somebody who's experienced domestic abuse. What age you are, probably if you're 80, you'll hear this passage differently from if you are 18. Now, the important thing as we get into this is to see that actually none of us are coming to this passage, none of us come to the Bible from a position of neutrality. We're not coming to it neutral and uh, seeing it through neutral eyes. We all come from the, own, the context that we personally are in and the culture in which we've been trained. So that also means that we need to have some humility, that when we come to a scripture, especially one like this, which has some things in it, which in our culture can seem somewhat controversial, we shouldn't just assume that we are right. To assume that we are right is a very arrogant thing to do. What we need to do is come and take the scripture uh, at face value in its own terms and try and understand what it is saying, why it's saying it, and how we can apply it to our lives today. So we need to think about our context, but then we need to think about the context of Peter and those he is writing to. And Peter, in writing this letter, really, it seems to me, has two main goals, two things he's really aiming at as he writes this letter. The first is that he wants to fortify the believers. They are in a position of difficulty. They're under pressure, and he's wanting to fortify them. He's wanting to encourage them. He's wanting to put some steel in their spines and help them to be strong and not fearful. And the second thing that he's wanting to do is to teach them how to witness to the reality of their faith in Jesus Christ. He wants them to have courage, and he wants them to be faithful in witness. He wants them to be faithful exiles. Now, if those are the two main goals of this letter, what does that uh, tell us about what, Paul, uh, what Peter writes in this part of his letter? The first thing is we need to see the flow of the whole letter. When we're doing what we're doing is, uh, like this morning, we take a part of the scripture and we teach into that. But this is a letter which was to be read in one go. and We need to have a sense of the overall shape of the letter. And Peter here says, wives in the same way. What does that mean, in the same way? What, it, what Peter's saying is that he's been giving instructions to the believers about how they are to live, how they're to live as citizens in the culture they're in, and how they're to live as workers in the world where they are. And actually, we've spent the last three Sundays looking at this, what it means to be citizens and what it means to be workers as followers of Jesus. And the aim of that instruction has been that they wouldn't give in to fear in hostile times, and that they would conduct themselves, especially when they face difficulty, in a way that really <coughs> witnesses to the reality of their faith. That's what has been going on in this letter before the passage we get to. And then Peter says, wives, in the same way, live this way. You've got to see the connection there. And the connection is that some of these wives, the women that he's writing to, some of them would have been feeling threatened by their husbands. And Peter wants them, whatever circumstances they're in, to be good witnesses to Jesus. It's the same thing he's talking about, whether he's talking about how we live as citizens, how we conduct ourselves as workers, or how we function as husbands and wives. What he's saying is, don't be fearful. 
and be a good witness to Jesus. Now, to help us understand this, we really need to try and imagine ourselves out of our own situation, out of our own context, and then apply that back into our context, back into our worlds today. So try and imagine that uh, we're not in 21st century Britain with all the laws that we have and the expectations we have about how society should be governed and about how relationships should operate. Try and imagine yourself into a very different world. Uh, it might be easier, rather than trying to think yourself back into history, think yourself into another part of the world today. Imagine that rather than here in uh, a Western liberal democracy, imagine that we lived in a fundamentalist religious state. Imagine that, you lived, that we were living in a fundamentalist Islamic state or maybe a fundamentalist Hindu context. And in that kind of context, the relationships between men and women are very different from what we take for granted. Now, imagine in that kind of context that a woman has come to faith in Jesus Christ against that bigger context of a kind of a fundamentalist religious society. Now, that kind of thing still happens today. It's actually happening all around the world today. Women from context in context, which are very different from ours, uh, are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. But imagine the kind of vulnerability that women like that experience. Because if a woman in that kind of context comes to faith in Jesus, she's in a sense, she's denying her culture, she's denying the religion in which she's being raised, and also she is in a way denying her husband because she's denying his faith. And in a kind of context like that where the husband holds all the power, where a husband has greater physical strength and the husband holds all the material, all the money, and the husband has all the legal rights, for a woman to take a, a position of faith in Jesus is a dangerous thing to do. It's likely that her husband is going to try and stop her, going to try and stop her new beliefs, try and stop her new practices, try and stop her new friendships. The reason that he'll do that is because he himself will feel threatened. This woman who's meant to do what I say, is believing in a different God from me and are living in a way which is different from how we have always lived. And a husband who feels threatened in that way will respond. And then a wife, in turn, will respond to how her husband responds. And in that kind of context, there's probably two ways that a woman would respond to her husband. One is that she would give in to fear because this is a dangerous, exposed place to be, that she'd become very fearful. Or if she's more feisty, it might be that she begins just to scream and shout at her husband. And that's the kind of context which Peter is speaking into here. Now, in that kind of situation, what does Peter say? He says to these women, be holy, be pure. Don't fear anything and respectfully submit for the sake of the gospel. Now, our situation is very different from what Peter the world that Peter's writing to or from other situations in the world today. But if you are a believer and you're the only believer in your family, you probably have an immediate sense of connection with what Peter is talking about here because you probably know something of the sense of isolation of being the only believer in your family, perhaps with active opposition from other members of your family to your faith. But what about the rest of us? What is uh, the application for us? What can we get out of this passage. What does the Word of God say to us today? A few things. First thing is that we should remember the reality of women in this kind of 
situation. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're called to have an awareness of the body of Christ around the world. And the reality is that in many parts of the world, people do not enjoy the same liberties and freedoms that we do. And we are called to remember those who suffer for the sake of the gospel. And this isn't a million miles away. In this church, we've got connections with people in other parts of the world whose situations are very much like this. Somebody comes to faith in Christ, and that puts them in opposition to everybody else in their family. They're immediately isolated, ostracized, put under pressure, intimidated, provoked. And we're called to remember people in that kind of situation and to pray for them. Elliot Clark, in his book, which we've been quoting a lot in this series, says this about his own experience of being in those kind of situations. I've spent extended time with many believers like this who suffer in the loneliness and isolation of a single believer household, especially in the case of first-generation Christians. It can be incredibly difficult to live in the same four walls as others who oppose the gospel. Not only do they not believe like you do, they can also use their collective influence to manipulate, shame, exclude, provoke, and intimidate. But Peter called those in such a difficult situation to live with the utmost respect, dignity, patience, gentleness, quietness, and humility. And while we might think Peter was asking a lot of these women, the reality is he expected the exact same disposition of all believers, even us, as we live as strangers and sojourners in this world. We're to remember those in this kind of situation, and we also are called to live with a similar attitude of humility. Second thing we can apply from this is that we do need to deal with the word submit. Now, I know it's been bugging you. I've been talking for 10 minutes, and you're thinking, why hasn't he explained what the word submit means yet? And that's because in our kind of context, this word seems entirely negative. We read this, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. And that immediately ruffles our feathers and upsets us emotionally because we think of submission meaning, meaning the restriction of human liberty, about the, the dampening down of personal autonomy. But actually, you don't have to think about it too much to realize that isn't necessarily the case. Because I think probably all of us know, certainly if we think about it a little bit, that there are things which you need to submit to in order to get a good result. Athletics coaches will talk to those they're coaching about submitting to the process. You need to submit to the process. If you want to be able to achieve the results you want in terms of athletic performance, you need to submit to the training process. You need to do things in a way which you might not want to. You might need to do things differently from how you think you ought to do them. You need to submit to the process in order to get the result that you want. The reality is that in order to get good at anything, you have to submit as a process you have to submit to. If you're going to be effective at anything in life, there's a sense in which you have to submit yourself in order to achieve that success. So we need, first of all, to see that submit isn't necessarily negative, that actually it can be something which enables us to come into a place of fruitfulness, effectiveness, and freedom. Also, for those of us who are Christians, absolutely crucially, we have the example of Jesus himself. A few verses earlier, verse 21 of chapter 2, Peter describes Jesus this way, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin 
and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus submitted himself. We also see this in the earlier life of Jesus, not just in his suffering, not just at the cross. The story about when Jesus was a young boy and went to Jerusalem and ended up debating with the teachers in the temple. Mary and Joseph didn't know where he was. And it says at the end of that story that Jesus went back home with Mary and Joseph and submitted to them. Now, Jesus is Lord of all. He is God incarnate. But Jesus was one who knew what it was to submit. And if Jesus was able to submit, that must mean that submission doesn't necessarily mean being inferior. Jesus was superior in every way to Mary and Joseph and to everyone else, but Jesus still knew what it was to submit. So submission doesn't necessarily, isn't necessarily bad because we need to submit in order to become effective in things. Submission doesn't necessarily mean inferiority because Jesus knew what it was to submit even though he was superior to all. And also what we see here, what Peter's getting at, is that there is a way, there's a there's a form of godly submission that witnesses to the reality of who Christ is and what he is doing in our lives. And that kind of godly submission is actually empowering. The thing is that that kind of submission is a submission which isn't forcefully imposed, but which is voluntarily given. And voluntarily given submission is an empowering thing. Those of you who are parents will perhaps more intuitively understand this. There's a difference between uh, screaming at your child to tidy their room and compelling them to do it through threats or bribery or whatever it might be, and then reluctantly tidying their room, and a child voluntarily choosing to tidy their room. If you're a parent, you know that what you really want is the latter. What's good is when a child just voluntarily does it. What is that? That is submission. What's the first one? It's forcibly imposed obedience. Forcibly imposed obedience can get the same results, but it's not the same thing. Voluntarily given submission is a very different thing. It's a much more beautiful thing, and actually it's empowering. If your teenager chooses to clean their room themselves, that is an empowering thing for them because it's about them taking responsibility rather than being shouted at about how they need to take responsibility. And when we take responsibility, that's empowering. And what Peter is saying to these women is actually empowering for them. Take responsibility in this situation. Take control. Very importantly, we need to see that what Peter doesn't do is tell husbands to make sure their wives submit. That would be a very different scripture. Husbands, make sure your wives are submitting to you. That's not what he says. He says, wives, submit to your husband. It's really important we see that what Peter's saying here is that the women are not chattels of their husbands. Actually, they're autonomous moral agents. They can take responsibility. They can take control. And that's a really radical idea for the culture and the context in which Peter is writing. You know, the, the Bible is incredibly socially progressive. What Peter is describing here is actually remarkably empowering for women who were in relationships where they might very well have felt threatened, might very well have felt isolated. He's saying to them, look, you, you're not powerless here. You've got a decision about how you live. Actually, you can take control of the situation. You can take control of your circumstances. You are empowered to choose how you act. As Christians, 
as citizens, as workers in our marriages, we're to live as witnesses to the truth of what Christ has done for us. Our actions speak louder than our words. And if we're to be faithful in exile, we need to submit in the right way to the right things. This is what Peter says a few verses earlier, verse 17 of chapter 2. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. A decision that we make about how we're going to live, the actions we're going to display, the reality of what Christ has done for us, how that empowers us to live. Submission, not necessarily such a bad word. Third application for us out of this passage, I think, is that we need to get our values right. Peter makes a distinction here between external and internal beauty. And the context is about this relationship between husbands and wives and how wives who believe in Christ are going to win over their husbands who don't believe in Christ. And the point that Peter's making is that your husband needs to see the real you. He needs to know that this faith in Jesus isn't just a show, but it's real. It needs to be displayed by what you're like on the inside, not just on the outside. And I think there's some broader application that we can draw from this for all of us, male and female, and in our culture today. What Peter's doing here is he's not forbidding the wearing of nice clothes and jewelry, but what he's saying is that these things should not be the source of a woman's beauty. How beauty is defined should not be primarily about external appearance. And I think that's a real challenge to us in our appearance-driven culture. I wonder if Peter was around today and writing a letter to us, whether he might say something more like, don't be obsessed by selfies. Don't spend too much obsessing over the trendsetters, who you really are and the impact you make shouldn't be based on how many likes you get on Instagram. You've got to be deeper than that. I think what Peter's dealing with here is a, a kind of shallowness, a superficiality, which values who we are in terms of outward appearance. And he's saying, no, there needs to be something deeper about you than that. Because if, 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 unbelieving, if you're unbelieving husbands, if women, your husbands are going to see that this is true, what you believe in Jesus. It's got to be more than just how you look outside. It's got to be something which pours from inside you. Now, we live in a strange world. We live in this world of me too, where we're not meant to objectify women's bodies. And at the same time, we live in an era where women's bodies are more objectified than they've ever been. And that's not just about all the selfies on Instagram or obsession with Love Island or whatever it might be. It's displayed in all kinds of different ways. There's a lot of talk and concern in our society about the so-called gender pay gap, women earning less than men for the same role. But there's another pay gap which doesn't get talked about nearly so much and perhaps is actually more serious, and that's what economists call the beauty premium. In some cultures, people earn a lot more because they look better. I've got a couple of graphs I found illustrating this. If you are in China or Germany and you are an above-averagely attractive woman, then you're going to earn 15 20% more than a plain woman. That's disgraceful. In other cultures, it doesn't matter so much about how good-looking you are. It's about how not good-looking you are. So next one, in the UK, for men, if you're an ugly bloke, you're going to earn 15% less than a good-looking bloke. 
I've been thinking about what I earn and trying to <laughs> correlate this. Now, again, that's, that's outrageous. But physical appearance is something which we often make all kinds of judgments on. This works out in other kinds of ways as well. There's the reality that people who are unusually good-looking can tend towards being rather arrogant. There's research which shows that uh, those people who are rated as more attractive tend to be more entitled, have a sense of greater entitlement to better treatment. They're less patient about being kept waiting than those who are more averagely attractive. Everybody wants to be beautiful, but if you're beautiful, it actually might turn you into a rather unpleasant, entitled person, all kinds of things that you assume you should have just because you look better than other people do. And that can't be right. Charles Revson, who founded the uh, cosmetics comp company Revlon, said that the beauty business is about selling hope in a jar. That's what people look for. People want to, they buy the creams, you buy the clothes, you try and look more beautiful. Why? Because that's the reality that so often those who are more beautiful seem to get further ahead in life. Now, what Peter's saying is that we should be different from that. We should be different from that. God is concerned with the heart, not with outward appearance. God's concerned with what's inside us, not our external appearance. Now, this doesn't mean that we should strive here at Gateway to become the church of the most unfashionable. It doesn't mean that we should put on our website, if you want to mean the, meet the plainest people in Paul, come and join us this Sunday. No, 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 that's not what Peter is saying. But the point is, our hope and our identity need to be in Jesus, not in our appearance. It's 2,000 years old, this letter, but how relevant is that to our society today? Peter wants us to lay hold of, look what he says, a beauty that is unfading. Something that will stand the test of time. The reality is that even the most beautiful woman, the most handsome man, the reality is that over time, time takes its toll and it fades. Physical beauty, physical strength fades, but there is an internal beauty which doesn't fade. That's why some of the most beautiful people in this church are some of the oldest and physically weakest because they have cultivated an inner beauty which shines through. It's got to be about what's going on inside, not about what's happening in our physical appearance. Something that will last the test of time. At the beginning of the letter, Peter writes to these believers and says, you have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. Your faith is of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire. What Peter wants us to see is that if you have Christ as a treasure we have, which will last eternally, it's not going to fade like physical beauty does. And so Peter wants us, he wants us to lay hold of this inner beauty, get our values right. We Christians are called to a different value system. We can't have the same value system as the world, which bases so much on external appearance. We've got to look at things differently. Another application is that we need to get marriage right. Peter speaks to wives here about how they're to live with their husbands, but he also speaks to husbands. And uh, while many of these women, <coughs> excuse me, while many of these women were married to men who weren't believers, there were men in the church who were believers in Jesus. And uh, 
how should those husbands act towards their wives? And what Peter says is, husbands, don't treat your wives as your culture teaches you. Now, note, really importantly again, he says, husbands in the same way. It's that phrase again. He said, wives in the same way, husbands in the same way. It's the same area of discussion. It's about how you live in a way which witnesses to the reality of God. And what he says is that husbands are to be considerate. Now, the word that's used there, the, uh, the Greek word, of course, is less originally written in Greek. The Greek word considerate carries a sense of, of knowledge or of understanding. And so what Peter is saying to the husbands here is, men, you need to treat your wives in a way which is considerate. You need to really work at understanding your wife. You really need to get to know her. Now, I'm a husband rather than a wife, but from what I know of my wife, I think this is probably what wives want. They want husbands who understand them, who work at understanding them, who work at getting to know them. There's always a sense, and actually there's meant to be a sense in which women are a mystery to men and men are a mystery to women. That's part of the beauty of the deal. But husbands are meant to work hard at getting to know their wives, really understanding them so that they can be genuinely considerate to them. Wives, does that ring true? Yes, good. Now, Peter then says something. It's great. Husbands, understand your wives. Know them so you can really love them. But then the next thing he says, which ruffles our feathers, is respect your wives as the weaker partner. Now, again, in our context, that immediately ruffles feathers because we think, what's he talking about? If you're a woman, I'm not weaker. I'm stronger than my husband in lots of ways. Of course, we need to think, we need to think about the context Haley's looking at Will. Should we get a list up on the screen of all the ways? All the ways you can take him down. <laughs> what, what Peter's saying here isn't something which is derogatory or sexist. What, he, what he's talking about is that just the reality that men are normally physically stronger than women. That's just generally true in most marriages, the stronger, physically stronger partner will be the man. And of course, in the culture in which Peter's living in, the culture these people he's writing to lived, it would have been normal, acceptable, approved for a husband to physically control his wife. We're very sensitive to issues of, rightly, domestic abuse in our context, but in this world, as in many situations around the world still, it would have been completely acceptable, completely normal for a husband to routinely knock his wife around. That was how you led your household. And what Peter says to these Christians, actually, again, is culturally massively shocking. We read this, and we're kind of culturally shocked. <gasps> Wives, submit to your husbands. <gasps> Wives, you're the weaker partner. <gasps> Sounds shocking to us, but actually what he's saying is much more shocking than that in the culture to which he's writing. He's saying, Wives, submit to your husbands. You're not ch chattels. You're autonomous moral agents. You can take control. And he's saying, husbands, don't treat your wives like your culture teaches you to treat them. Men are to treat their wives as heirs with them. The women are not excluded from what the men get. This is so radical in this context. It's not that the men get access to God, which the women don't. No, together you get access to God. And all the 
benefits of knowing Christ you're to experience together in equality. Peter assumes that there is equality between husbands and wives. Yes, there are differences. Men generally are physically stronger than women, but there is no difference in heavenly destiny. Together, you receive all the benefits of knowing Christ. And so a husband needs to treat his wife not as a culture teaches him how to treat his wife, but as Jesus would teach him how to treat his wife. And this is amazing. Peter says, if you don't treat your wife with proper respect, it's going to mess up your prayers. God's not going to listen to you if you're not treating your wife right. That's amazing. Now, again, we probably know that kind of intuitively. It's actually really hard to pray if you're in bad relationship with somebody. If you fall out with somebody, it doesn't just affect your relationship with them. I know myself, if there's times of conflict with somebody, it needs to get resolved because it affects my relationship with God. It's really hard to pray effectively if I feel in conflict with somebody I'm meant to be in friendship with. And if as a husband you are not treating your wife right, you're not going to pray right. God's not going to listen to your prayers if you're not treating your wife in the way that you are meant to. It's an amazing thing which Peter says. Wives, submit to your husband's Husbands, respect your wives. Last thing flowing out of that is we need to understand that marriage is a sermon preached about the love of God. You know, marriage often gets quite a bad rap in our context. Actually, more people now are unmarried than married. Uh, People often have other social arrangements. The prime minister moves into Downing Street with his girlfriend, gets her pregnant. I kind of wonder why he hasn't had a vasectomy yet, don't you? <laughs> Sorry, I probably shouldn't have said that, but. <laughs> As everybody on the news last night was saying how wonderful it is, I was thinking, no, it's actually pretty shameful. But The Bible actually is all about marriage. The Bible begins with a marriage. God forms a man and a woman, Adam and Eve, and he joins them together in a relationship which is described as one flesh. And the marriage, and then the Bible ends with a marriage as God marries his people. And so part of our witness in exile, part of our being faithful in exile, is that those of us who are married, those of us who love Jesus and are married, or even if you love Jesus and your marriage partner doesn't love Jesus, what we're called to do is to live in a way that our marriages tell something of the story of God's love. That our marriages somehow point to the bigger picture of a God who is going to marry his people. And the beautiful thing about this is that you don't have to be married to be part of that story. This is true for singles as well. If you follow Jesus, you're caught up in the great story of a marriage, that you're going to be part of the people of God. You are part of the people of God to whom God is going to be eternally, faithfully married. But those of us who are married need to see the responsibility that we have, that our marriages have a bigger purpose than just our private domestic arrangements. Our marriages are meant to witness to the story of God's love for us. And that's why it matters how husband and wife treat one another. That's what Peter is driving at. It's very practical, but it's also huge. Let's pull all this together before we finish. Peter's dealing with some practical realities in this letter. Life's tough for these believers, but they're called to be faithful in exile. They're called to witness to the reality of what Christ has done for them.
And that affects all the practical stuff of life. It affects how you live as a citizen. It affects how you live as a worker. It affects your domestic life. It affects you. Also, when the Bible speaks of marriage, there's always this bigger picture in view. Before we get to this passage, Peter has said, what we the people of God, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. The bigger picture in view is that God loves his church. He loves his people. He loves his brides. And he is going to be eternally, faithfully married to us. Now, out of this, what Peter teaches us, there might be some stuff that you need to deal with. There might be some stuff in your own life. If you're married, there might be some stuff in your own marriage that you need to deal with, some changes that you need to make. might be some attitudes which actually you need to change in. It might be that you need to deal with that word submit and process it through and see how that isn't necessarily a bad thing, but actually can be an empowering thing. It might be that you're a husband and you're not investing in getting to know your wife as you should, and you need to change some things there. It might also be that you need some healing this morning. It might be that your experience actually in relationships has not been anything like what Peter's uh, believing for these people, but your experience in relationships has been one of of neglect or abuse or of hardship or of difficulty, and it might be that what you most need to experience this morning is the healing love of Jesus. And it might be that what you need this morning is to get a bigger vision, a bigger vision not only for how human marriages can be, and God knows in our society we need a bigger vision of that, but also a bigger vision of God's purpose for us, his people, of how we are called as his brides, to live with him, enjoy him, and know him forever. And what amazing good news that is. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you so much for this mighty letter which you inspired Peter to write. I ask that we would take what it teaches and apply it in our lives. I pray, Lord, where there are things which in our cultural context are difficult, you'd help us to work through those and see what the word is saying. I pray you'd help us see the radical things actually scripture says in terms of how we're to live and the attitudes we're to have. And I pray, King Jesus, that you would, yes, help us. I pray those of us who are married and love you, that we would conduct our marriages in a way which does speak to the greater reality of uh, your marriage to your people. Lord, I pray for those here this morning who are not married and maybe struggle with that. I pray you'd help them and let them see the wonder that they're part of the bride of Christ as well. I pray, Jesus, for those here this morning who don't yet know you, that they might see that, yes, coming to know you, coming to know Jesus, actually is the greatest treasure, the greatest prize, and the greatest hope. I ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.